What's going on, guys? You've got Evan Knowles and Logan Jones here from the Middle Tech Podcast. In this episode, we sit down with Rafi Kayat, and he is starting a company called Borderless. So everybody, I be, I think, is starting to get more familiar with what's happening in the banking space. You've got digital payments. You've got this overarching fintech category, peer-to-peer payments like Venmo, Cash App, and you've got Bitcoin. You've got all these ways banks are either getting disrupted or they're adapting to technology, they're innovating, and it's just growing very quickly. And so Borderless um, is in that category of innovation along with the banks. And at the end of the day, the people that benefit from this are the consumers. So you could say the banks are getting disrupted in a way, uh, but ultimately they're adapting. They're having to adapt. They're adapting the best they can. Um, and all of this transparency and all of this more efficient technology works its way down to us, and we get better fees, we get better experiences. I can send Logan money just from my phone right here in a matter of seconds. You know, several years ago, that was not possible. Um, and so all this is happening very fast. And again, uh, Rafi and his team are building an amazing product in the space, so we're excited for him to tell you about it. Uh, but he came here from New York. Yeah, which I think is super, super unique. You don't hear about many companies leaving New York to come to Louisville, Kentucky, and he gets into this story a little bit, but I thought it was super cool how he was talking about the cities he was considering. And he said, I was considering Los Angeles. I was considering Austin, Texas, and I was considering Louisville. And I was like, how in the world does Louisville fit in with those three cities? So it was really cool to hear somebody talk about it on that kind of caliber and talk about the city in a way that compares to those those cities that are obviously doing doing awesome things there. So he'll get in more into his story as we uh, as we dive into this interview. Um, and also as to why he actually chose to come to Louisville. So it was a really cool conversation with Ravi. He's building, or Rafi, he's building a really cool company there. And uh, we're excited for you guys to listen to it. Let's get into it. What's going on, guys? You've got Evan and Logan here with the Middle Tech Podcast. We've got Rafi. Uh, so we're going to sit down with Rafi and walk through his company. Uh, he's very special because he came here from out of state, from New York, moved inward. So we're going to hear that story. Um, and then we're going to get into basically uh, learnings like we usually do. Uh, but before we do any of that, we want to give a shout out to uh, our buddy Nico, who gave us the introduction to Rafi. Is um, yep. So Nico's in Louisville helping us meet great entrepreneurs like Rafi and helping us uh, get them on the show. So that's how we met Rafi. Uh, Rafi, thanks for joining, man. Yeah, thanks for having me. Absolutely. So let's um, jump into your background. Uh, talk oh, about. Wait, we got to introduce the bourbon here. Oh, you're I getting ahead of yourself. You know, this is this is what this is what New, I'm all about. So tradition. I got I got to intro the bourbon. We're drinking four roses single barrel tonight. <laughs> <laughs> We had us some new riff last time. This is this is probably my second favorite. So, special occasion. Nice. I see you got the nice ice cube. Yeah, yeah. yeah he that. he does. I don't. <laughs> he broke my Evans. Evans kind of melted. Um, yes. Good good call, Logan. We gotta get that going. <laughs> you know, I wouldn't let you forget the bourbon. 
Uh, Rafi, but get into your background. So where are you from, education, uh, and the professional background up to this point? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm from Lebanon. I was born and raised there, and I moved here at the age of 17 um, to go to Penn State. So I'm the youngest of three siblings. Both parents are entrepreneurs, and when I got to Penn State, um, believe it or not, I went into architectural engineering. So I wanted to go into the architectural world, um, and like, because that's you know, what I always wanted to do when I was a kid. Um, so I wanted to use my creative mind and I was really good at math. So I chose that major. And then I graduated with a bachelor's and then quickly kind of in sort of real world after that. And so started working in Philly for a few years and then I moved to New York City. Um, and, but all this time, you know, throughout school and work, I always had these kind of ideas that in the back of my mind or actually things and it started to evolve like from things from like just sketches to more of built out product screens and um and that's kind of like been the pattern of like an evolving idea after the next um and so i worked on a couple startups and the older i got the more serious they became and actually the startup before borderless i had done is called mtap so my previous startup uh, was, although it was short-lived, it was kind of born out of a, a personal pain. So I had like friends all over the world and I wanted to stay still connected with them. Uh, some of them were like childhood friends. And so MTAP was um, a music startup where effectively if I'm listening to music, uh, anyone around the world can tap into and listen to the same, same song at the same time right? Effectively, you're tapping into someone. Um, and so you kind of become your own radio station. And I learned a lot, you know, during during that time, um, you know, going into a really heavily regulated space, uh, very competitive. Um, just overall, music is not an easy space to get into. Uh, it's super crowded. Uh, so uh that kind of startup, obviously, you know, it's no longer available, but it was really the foundation for me to build Avenger. You know, I kind of knew nothing about music at the time, regulation, startups, unit economics uh, at the level that you need to have to actually build a long, sustainable company. And, um, and those kind of were the founding blocks, you know, even though it wasn't um, anything really too borderless, it was kind of the finding blocks to where it got me to today. And I think you need those in order to create any startups, you know, so any of those first time founders, they succeed immediately. They're, they're very rare, you know, and yeah, if they do succeed, yeah. uh, I believe like we don't know the full story behind it. So talk so about, that's kind of how it all got started. Gotcha. That's great. Talk about, you know, your initial move to the United States from Lebanon. Is that something your family always wanted? Is that something you wanted? Talk about the the decision behind that. Yeah, so actually, um, my mom is American. She, you know, we, my and my brother was born here, so they used to live here for a while, and then they moved to Lebanon, and that's where I was born. So there was always this connection to the U.S. And my brother came here also to study, and so I kind of followed in my brother's footsteps in that way to come to the U.S. and and pursue kind of higher education here. 
Gotcha. Um, so that's that's kind of how I had that high. Okay, makes sense. Um, well, why don't we jump into to Borderless then? You had mentioned that your previous startup didn't necessarily have a connection to it, but it set the foundation for you to be ready for when that idea came to pounce on it and, and, and do it. So talk about you know the origins of Borderless. Where did the idea come from uh, initially? Yeah, so the idea actually came from an emergency business trip at the time when I was working for an engineering company. I went to Toronto and we had to be there like literally almost the same day. So I went home, packed a carry-on and then went to the airport. And when I landed, I was like, uh-oh, I don't have any Canadian dollars to, to get to anywhere. Um, so I went to the foreign exchange place that like everyone does, right? Um, and you look at the rates and you just know you're getting ripped off, right? And obviously you can just Google the rate and you can find out what the, what the actual rate is. And so uh, when I was in line, I looked at everyone and I was like, all these people, they're coming from different places. They have different currencies. You know, what if, and we're all kind of standing in line. And what if there was a way we could, you know, be able to trade currencies between people, right? To make it more efficient and less, you know, more cost effective. And, um, and you know, in the on-demand economy at the time, this was back in 2015, right? Um, kind of Uber was just becoming a thing and uh, they just launched that you can order a kitten off of Uber, right? Um, I was like, you know, there has to be a way to make this a little bit easier, right? And so that was kind of the foundation from there. And, and so, but I was, a, I was a big disadvantage at that point, trying to go into this world of finance, into the world of payments. Um, it took me a long time. So I actually did about... Uh, over a year worth of research just to get up to speed and to be able to kind of be on level with people in the industry. And so um, I was determined, honestly, at that point to find a way for people like me to be able to send or to travel or live or, you know, work abroad without kind of being, you know, quote unquote taxed on it. So after that, I kind of quit my job and, and dove a little bit deeper um, and started to ask basic questions like, well, why do we need to exchange currency in the first place? You know, is it because to pay for X, Y, and Z, whether it's a cab or dinner or whatever? And, you know, why do I need cash? Why can't I use my bank card or my credit card? And so it's just like all these kind of basic questions going into the nitty gritty detail of how actually credit cards work and how actually bank wires work. Um, and so all kind of led to, well, what if, if there's a way I can pay the same way I do at home anywhere in the world without even thinking twice about it, right? Without being charged just different fees because I'm in a different country. Um, and so that's kind of was like the trigger. And so over the past two years, uh, we've been through incubators and accelerator and we've kind of vetted the idea. We then interviewed over a uh, hundred companies. Uh, and the reason why we went after companies versus individuals at the beginning is because the payment process starts with the business, right? If you walk into an ice cream shop, they only accept cash. Uh, you're not going to be able to buy an ice cream with a credit card. Um, and so then we actually then, obviously we interviewed people and we have like thousands of survey responses on their habits and behaviors. And in a place like payments, it's just also a very crowded market. You know, it seems like I didn't learn the first time around with my first startup. Um, but this time we actually took a, what we call a blue ocean strategy is trying to find an ocean 
um, a red ocean basically is a competitive market, right? And a blue ocean is basically um, an ocean where there's no sharks, uh, an ocean where you're free to roam around because there's opportunity there. And so this blue ocean strategy kind of allowed us to really pinpoint um, a single need or a pain point in the market that we can definitely solve for that other businesses don't do really well. Um, and so we've been kind of in stealth mode, uh, building on, on the product of Vodalus, and we've been kind of now in our beta slowly coming out, becoming more and more public by, by the day. Yeah. I felt that pain point of getting to a foreign place and not knowing, well, when I, I went to Costa Rica a couple, a year ago, and when I landed, I obviously had to exchange my money in, and I honestly just walked up to a kiosk, handed them money, and they could have handed me something totally wrong and taken advantage of me because I... It was just so confusing to me. It was a different language. Um, I didn't know Spanish that great. Um, but I, it was hard for me to, in my head, on the fly, with along with everything else going on at the yeah. airport, figure out this currency exchange. And then my entire trip, I've got to admit, like I had to use Google Translate like to figure out the exchange the whole time. Sometimes I would just hand people money and I could give them like a ridiculous amount of money for the cost of it. And I just could have them give me my change. Like I just, yeah. it was a really bad experience, but it was the same way for me when we were in Spain. I went to, I got to go to Barcelona and Madrid and it was half the trip was just walking around looking for the kiosk with the best exchange rate. <laughs> we're sitting there like, okay, this is what it should be. And then we're kind of going around like, this is a ripoff. This is a ripoff. So I think, yeah, Evan and I both get the pain point here. Um, but yeah, so talk a little bit about after you guys have, have identified this problem, how you've gone about building the platform and, and solving it and actually implementing a solution to this. Yeah. So after going through extensive research, um, all this time we've been building kind of mini versions of the product, uh, MVP kind of type level, um, and the interviews got a little bit more involved. Uh, so Started with an MVP, basic questions, then drilling a little bit more into it, building a bigger MVP, doing that. And so um, at that point in time, we're also looking for bank partners uh, to help us actually do this. Um, and I'll get to actually the technicalities of how it, it will all work together and, and the complexity of it in a minute. But from a product perspective, um, it's it's you, we do need a financial partner to build the, what we have. So getting the experience from 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 them and getting obviously other things like being compliant with regulations not just in one country but in multiple countries for example in the US although it's the same country you need about you know 50 licenses uh for each state um and so it's it gets really expensive and quite complex and so you do need a team of experts to actually help you innovate in the product and we wanted to focus our resources and our time on the product to give it to our customers versus, you know, getting into um, the legalities and regulations of things. And so we actually partner with a financial institution and that's how we um, actually are able to go to market and, um, you know, enable what, what we actually do. And so to talk more about what really Borderless does is um, we provide direct bank payments in seconds. Um, so we're a new global platform where you can check out or pay uh, online using your bank while avoiding any wire fees, uh, any credit card fees, and long transfer delays. So as a business with Borderless, you can get paid directly into your bank. 
Um, so you avoid any middleman or wallets, uh, any additional fees or delays, and you get to save up up to 67% in payment processing fees. Um, and you know, one thing we also noticed in our research is that although a lot of companies collect through credit cards, they also collect through uh, bank wires because let's face it, you're not gonna run a 10 or 20 or 50 or even $100,000 payment through a credit card. Now, some companies do believe it or not, but the fees are gonna be super, uh, super high. So uh, they actually you know, vote in for a wire transfer, even though the fees are, are still high, but they're less than what a credit card is. And so uh, what we've done is we kind of combined two things into one. And so we actually capped our fees. Uh, so unlike credit cards, we hit a, you know, a cap and then you can process any uh, large amount for the same price. Um, so it gives you the ability to easily process large transactions. Um, but we still wanted, you know, for payers to keep it the same experience as a credit card, right? You want to go online, you want to pay, you don't want to pay any fees because, you know, usually it's business, but no one really knows that. Um, so paying with Bordeaux is completely free. And the best part is that we, if it's an international payment, we give you a better exchange rate than your bank or PayPal. And, um, and with Borderless, you can track a payment like a package. So I don't know if you've ever sent a wire transfer in your life, um, but you just send it and you have no idea whether your bank sent it, when it's going to get there. And so you just tell your, you know, whoever you paid, hey, I paid you. And, you know, here's the screenshot of my bank confirmation. Um, and they never know you actually paid until the money hits their bank account and they don't know who it came from. Um, so it's, it's a really disconnected uh, field. Um, and so we wanted to actually create a solution to, to streamline that. I remember my experience with wiring money. This is, I'm kind of telling on myself here, this is not a great story, but I was a freshman in college and like any freshman in college, I wanted a fake ID. So some friends and I went down to Kroger and wired some money like China or wherever it was. But I mean, you're right. You, you have no idea if, if they're going to send you your product back. There's no, there's no communication or, or transparency with what's going on there. Yeah. Um, so some of the audience might be familiar with companies like Stripe, Plaid, Square. You know, Plaid just got um, acquired, I think, Visa. Um, Stripe is killing it. I mean, they're doing, seem to be doing everything right. Square's great ecosystem that small businesses are using. Where does this fit in? How does it compare to those that people might already be familiar with? Yeah. Um, good question. So I'll do the easy one first. So, uh, Plaid, um, is a bank aggregator. It's not a payment company. So meaning they allow people to use their bank in new ways. Um, so they're kind of a connector between, companies like Borderless and, um, and traditional banks. And so um, we use bank aggregators, for example, to allow us to connect to your bank so we can instantly verify that one, the bank account is real, and that two, that you own it, so to verify your bank. Um, and we do that in a very kind of simple uh, way, and that's what their company is built on, right? So you just enter your banking credentials, like your bank username and your password, and it's done in a very secure way where that's never shared with us. Um, it's literally as if you're going to chase.com and entering your, yeah. your, your user credentials. And then what we get passed back is the key information that we need, right? Like your bank account number and your routing number that no one knows on top of their head. And so they really kind of simplified that process. And 
Um, and what they've done on a more technical level is they've given users the power uh, to take kind of control a little bit of their their financial data, right? Yeah. And enable companies like Borderless to do something their bank doesn't do, um, to do something new. And so um, so that's kind of how we differ um, between between us and, and Plaid. Um, to talk about Stripe, um, I kind of want to take a step back in history here, if that's yeah, yeah, all right it. with you guys. Yeah. Um, and I think this will be very interesting. So uh, Stripe is, is a credit card company, right? And we all know the, the world of credit cards. It's, it's Visa and MasterCard, right? And that's why I think uh, they're, they're amazing companies. They've been built in the 60s, 70s, and they've been there for a very long time. And the reason why is because they created uh, an infrastructure that's very hard to replicate. Um, how credit cards started is very simple. Like back in the day, you used to have credit with a store. So let's say it's the supermarket or, you know, the cigar shop or whatever it is, wherever you used to shop, right? And it's like, okay, I owe, you know, Logan owes me a hundred bucks and I have like a, a ledger. And so that became very unsustainable because you had credits everywhere. And so what banks did is they created a card where, they basically would spot you for the money. And so then it's centralized. Um, and however, it wasn't, there was no Visa and MasterCard. Every bank was kind of the Wild West. Every bank kind of issued it. And Bank of America was one of the first. Um, and so other banks, you know, caught the hint of it and were like, this is making us a ton of money as a bank. Um, and so they started to issue their own cards. And uh, at the time, kind of Bank of America was a little bit of a monopoly because they were the first to start. Um, and then other banks came in and were like, okay, well, how can we compete? Let's unite together. And that's kind of how MasterCard started. And so really kind of, you know, taking a network of banks together into one, creating what now is a full network of, of banks around the world. Um, and so we're very similar to Visa and MasterCard. So what we've done at Borderless is there's all these now local payment systems around the world and like ACH uh, in the US, what you know is ACH in the UK, it's called BAX. And what we've done is now we've linked them together under one umbrella to form a network. And then we took it a step further into making a product where companies now can collect through under one systems and user can pay. So it's like building a PayPal or, you know, an Venmo basically on top of this network, similar to how PayPal and Venmo kind of built their system on top of credit cards. Um, so that's kind of, you know, the big intro that I wanted to do before getting into credit cards and how we're different than, than, than Stripe. So Stripe is based on a credit card. It's a company to help you collect credit cards. It's a charging and billing company. And we're an alternative to that. So similar to how credit card is, instead of doing by credit cards, now you can do it with your bank and you can do it globally. Um, and so that's that's kind of how we're different than than Stripe. Hopefully that answers the question in a um, yeah. <laughs> in a that little helps. bit technical way. Yeah, yeah, no, that helps. Um, yeah, I mean the payments space is seeming to grow very fast. I mean the fintech industry is just blowing up and. It's confusing to me because I'm not a finance guy, but I'm starting to learn it more and more because I have to 
Um, and it's just, you know, Stripe continually comes up in the tech space, the developer space, because they have these great APIs, you know, to build with. Braintree, that's owned by PayPal, same thing. Um, and then Square's in there as well. Um, and everybody seems to be building their own, it's, it seems like. So then there's Shopify, and Shopify has their own payments. Um, Amazon Pay, Apple Pay, it's all, you know, everybody has these payment methods. So what about, you know, Apple Pay or Amazon Pay or Shopify Pay? Is that the same, is that very similar to what Stripe's doing? It's just they're doing it in-house? What's, what about yeah, that? Yeah, for example, Shopify payments, they're also doing it in, like, they're also a credit card processor. Yeah. They're very similar to Stripe. Um, they just have it do it in-house because payments uh, at, at the 2.9% that they collect um, is very lucrative, right? Yeah. Um, and so, you know, what we've thought for Borderless is, well, you know, we didn't want to be another another kind of player on the board that does the same exact same thing as everyone. And so that's why we thought out to build the infrastructure where now we could live into all these different uh, payment options. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, eventually, hopefully you'll see us on, on Stripe maybe or on different payment platforms where people can pay using their bank or using Borderless on all these different platforms instead yeah. of just credit cards yep and i think and, you go ahead yeah. um and kind of like the reason uh you know i think we get a question well what why do i want to do that right um and really kind of I, my answer is like two two reasons one is uh gen z and then two is b2b e-commerce um so to gen z i think anyone between the age of 17 and 24 um they're ditching credit cards. Uh, and the reason why is because they were raised during the 2008 financial crisis. Um, and so they saw their parents very much in debt. They saw how much, how important it is to save. Um, and so they're inherently, uh, whether millennials want to admit it or not, financially more savvy. Um, and so there was a survey done by um, Javelin Group that 51% of Gen Z do not wish to apply for a credit card. Um, and obviously they use uh, less cash, 18% versus the millennials, 33, uh, because they're the smartphone generation. So we may be the internet generation, but they're definitely the smartphone generation, right? Everything is done on their phone. They can't leave them. They're just used to it. Um, and so if you want to capture a new audience, increase your conversion, you have to add alternative payment methods. And this is kind of where borderless comes in, right? The second reason is B2B e-commerce. It's on the rise like crazy. Um, you know, the ways of doing invoices and waiting 90 days, all that, it's kind of, even though it's sometimes it's in their favor, it's kind of coming to a halt, right? There needs to be this transparency, the efficiency, um, and most importantly, liquidity, right? Mm-hmm. 99% of small businesses, uh, 99% of businesses in the U.S. are small businesses, and they live to this like month-to-month type uh, income, right? And so if it gets delayed, they don't get their money, then they can't actually grow as fast. And so um, this is where e-commerce is on the rise. It's, you know, last year grew by 11% to surpass over a trillion dollars. Um, and uh, you need to have ways where they can pay you online, especially for very large transactions and you don't want to get charged, you know, on a $30,000 payment, um, you know, three or three per, or, or 4% if it's an international payment. Yeah. It makes a ton of sense, you know, especially the Gen Z piece. I, I have a credit card, 
but that's because I, I know I can be responsible with it and I'm, I'm earning points and travel points and things like that. Um, but I, I do get that feeling. I didn't get one till later. Like I didn't get one till like two, three years ago. Um, so I didn't get one till I was like 21, 22. And that was because I had this weird feeling about it. Like I don't need one, like you said, but I ended up looking more into it and just doing my research and decided it was a good idea to get one. But what I resonated with most there was I don't have any, I never have cash. And if I have cash, I'm actively trying to get rid of it and like give it to somebody and have them like Venmo me for it. Or I'm just like, that's the first thing I get out of my wallet is cash. Um, and now it's, you know, Apple pay, it's, um, Venmo cash app. And that's, that's what people are used to. It's so it's almost more of, uh, it's definitely more convenient, but I think it's just more, like you said, the Gen Z way is just seamless, fast and, and technology enabled. Um, so everything just feels to be moving that way very quickly. I mean, that's, that's kind of the, the, right. How, how they entice you, all these credit card companies is, Hey, you get these amazing points with us. And, you know, um, and then you can use them. It's like free, free cash back, right? Yeah. Um, what they don't inherently know is that everything they purchase is actually has this built-in pricing into it, right? Or this, uh, as you said, kind of baked in pricing into products. Like when you try to find a business right now, you want to price it at $15 or $20. And then you have to add 3% on top of that, um, mm-hmm because that's going to go straight to payment processing, you know? So if you're charging a hundred, well now I'm going to charge 103 because 3% of that I'm already losing. Um, so, I, you know, and so if we actually, there is another solution where there's not that it really inflated pricing. Well, either one, the business can get that money back into their pockets or two, what we're seeing with some of our customers is they're sharing those savings with their clients because this is a new payment method. They want to actually educate their clients. And so they share those savings with them. Um, so there you go. That's kind of your real time cash back there yeah. uh, versus credit card points that every 10 points or hundred points or a thousand points accumulate to a dollar. And then you no- never know what that kind of <laughs> rate is. Right. Yeah. That makes a ton of sense. And I actually spoke with a company today. I had a, um, couple individuals reached out to me that's that are starting a company called swipe some out of st louis and they call themselves a fractional payments um outsource fractional payments um so like large companies now that do a lot of transactions and accept credit cards they have a chief payments officer well this company is an outsourced version of that and they do it all digitally and they're saving these businesses a lot on those transaction fees you mentioned that are like three percent and so what these companies will do is they'll come in and they'll negotiate and create a marketplace for this company's payments. They'll negotiate with all the different payments uh, providers and processing companies, and then they'll get their rate down. And then like you said, it's very interesting you said that because now the company has the option to either absorb that that delta between the 3% and what they actually get now, and that's a new revenue stream, or they share it with their, their customers. Um, and so it's just, you know, it seems like there's a change of tide with, you know, a lot of these um, hidden fees and there's more transparency and there's more willingness to, you know, create a marketplace for payments because it's, it's growing so fast. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you think about it, a, a business that collects on average, you know, let's say their annual revenue is about a million. Um, with PayPal, let's say their fees would be X with Stripe. It's, Z, you know, with borderless, it could be 
saving them anywhere between thirty-one dollars to $21,000. So that's like three to 2% of your annual revenue can go straight to your pocket to do whatever you want, right? That's amazing. Yeah. And you can share that or, you know, that can go into building a new piece of your business or throwing it into uh, advertising to grow your business. Um, and it's like a couple percentage points. You don't think they're a lot, but they actually end up um, adding up over the course. Of oh yeah. For somebody like a DoorDash or an Uber, I can't even imagine like yeah. their, their chief payments officer, you know, that's a very important role. That was a role that I didn't know about till today, till I spoke on the phone with that company. And it just makes so much sense now that I understand that, that side of the business a little bit better. Um, talk about, you know, your current state as a company, talk about your size, fundraising, um, location of your team. Talk about that. Yeah. So, uh, well, we're located in Louisville. Uh, we're actually a small and very efficient team at the moment. Um, and that's kind of how we've always had an approach to building the, the company. Um, only hire when you need to hire um, and hire Amen for a very specific role. Um, I think a lot of companies fall into um, the trap of Hiring means really growing like crazy, but actually you end up racking up a lot of overhead costs. Um, where in a time like COVID, you actually end up laying a lot of your staff. And so uh, we're happy that the staff is still the same during you know um, a pandemic. Um, and actually, we're uh, also looking to hire people. And so it's been it's been uh, it's been really good to to have that approach. Um, we did raise a small round. Um, and but we've always had a bootstrap approach so uh, as a company as a whole uh, we have a lot to um, find before we actually raise money and i think uh, we didn't want to waste a lot of time thinking about raising money because a lot of founders do that and most of the times you're raising money too early uh, about 10 percent of startups actually get venture funding um, and so we're currently focused on customers, right? We are one number one focus is have a strong customer base and build a product for them and that they like, um, and that they can actually get excited about and share with their clients or customers or even friends. Right. Um, and once we've established this sales process, then we can go ahead and replicate it because replicating is also very tough. Um, and then have an effective conversion rate. At that point is, you know, we'll, we'll turn to venture funding um, to fuel our success. But uh, if we're uh, actually profitable uh, and capable ourselves, um, you know, I think um, we might actually just do it ourselves at that point. Yeah. Bravo to, to you figuring that out. Most startups uh, want to jump straight to raising money because it's just the cool Silicon Valley thing to do. Um, and like you said, they either do it too early or they raise money and they go and hire people because that feels like growth. I've been a part of that. Um, and you hire a bunch of people and then you lay them off again because you run out of money and your burn rate was just not sustainable. And then there's also the data part that you mentioned that was just um, very important and, and very glad that you brought it up, which is find a repeatable model as a company. And that repeatable model comes from, one, understanding your customers well, but two, digging into the sales data. You know, if you're going and raising money and you don't know what your conversion rates are, you don't know. So it's like if you go and raise money and you don't know what that money is going to be able to achieve in the end because you don't know your conversion rates and you have no data on your sales, then you're really just raising money for the sake of raising money. 
in a way, or it needs to, it needs to bridge you to another point to where you can get closer and figure that out. But if you know the conversion rates and you have enough data to confidently raise money and say, I'm going to raise this money and in 12 months we should be here, then that's, you know, a great, a great feeling. And that comes from understanding your customers and those, that data. Yeah. I mean, what's one kind of advice I have for, for founders is, is kind of always know your unit economics, right? Is the more you can actually improve your unit economics, the more profitable you are as a company, the more you can do. Um, and so uh, one of the ways we um, at Bortles were always looking to uh, innovate is actually, well, how can we improve our system even further, right? Um, for example, during our, you know, in our infrastructure, if you're trying to pay someone in the United Kingdom or in Canada or in Australia, um, right now what we do is we debit your account in the U.S. And uh, we actually have a system that can pay out that person in their home country in their local currency, right? And so with that, what we've done is, one, removed entirely the ability to send money across border. And that's kind of where all the fees and the delays come into play. Um, and so with that, what we've done is that's how we're much cheaper and that's how we can pass on these savings while still being operational. That's kind of like the competitiveness yeah. in the market. Yeah. And so the more you actually can do better unit economics, improve your system, the more you're actually going to be competitive in the market, but also be more profitable as a company. Yeah, more efficient. We uh, We had a... Venture capitalist named John Wilmoth there from Louisville of Poplar Ventures. And one of his, his biggest advice to entrepreneurs was um, grow efficiently. You know, when you when you come and ask for money from a venture capital firm, make sure that you can talk to them about um, your metrics and talk about if you give me a million dollars, I'm going to turn this into two. Don't turn it into $500,000. That's not efficient, right? So that was his big thing is as an entrepreneur, make sure you know how to be an efficient company. And then at that point, your conversations with venture capitalists is going to be much easier um, and they're going to be more likely to invest in you. So that's, Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, they're looking to get rich from, from you, right? In a way, like they're looking to help you for them, mm -hmm. for you to help them, right? Yeah. And so you got to present a very valuable equation for them. X plus Y equals Z and it's Z is, you know, 10x or 5x or whatever that is. And depending on the venture capital, how crazy they are, right? They'll say 20x. And if it's not 20x, then forget <laughs> it. Um, and so we just be careful about, you know, who you choose. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Or there's uh, um, SoftBank who just hands out money. <laughs> it's just does not care what the money, does not care what the equation is. It just sounds cool. Here's, here's a billion dollars. <laughs> So you, you talked about earlier in the episode uh, starting the company in New York, and then we got to talk on the phone, and you talked about moving the company to Louisville, and I think there's there's a pretty cool story behind that and, and some, some reasons that went into that. So why don't you dive in uh, to, to the story about coming from New York to Louisville? Yeah, so, um, you know, New York was the right place to start Borderless. Uh, it's like a financial epicenter. And also a growing, uh, very, very growing tech scene. It's, I think, number two or number three, whether you want to rank it after Seattle or not. Um, and uh, and so built great connections over there. Um, and that's kind of where we improved most of the product uh, to where it is today. Um, but we knew staying in New York as a company, as a culture, as a future, 
was not the best thing to do, uh, right? To talk about efficiency, to talk about where we want to take the company long term. Um, it wasn't the best choice for us. And that's kind of why we started to look elsewhere. And so um, we had a whole process behind it. And so we started to look at different cities, right? The, the growth rate, the, the tech ecosystem, um, the talent, uh, cost of living, um, you know, there was kind of variable metrics. Um, and so a couple cities came to mind. Louisville was not one of them. Um, and, and somehow, uh, throughout this process and we were like, like, I'd say, you know, three quarters of the way or 60% of the way through this process. Right. Um, I read an article about Louisville and the article was very kind of this catchy type article where um, they're looking to invest into the Louisville ecosystem about $200 million, I believe by 2023. Um, And it's the same amount that's being bet on the Kentucky Derby in one day. And I was like, whoa, I didn't know (laughs) people bet that much money in one day (laughs) in the first place. Um, And so that kind of was like spiked my interest into looking into the tech ecosystem in Kentucky as a whole. Um, And so got connected here um, to Patrick Henshaw, who was the CEO of Leap at the time. Um, And after a few conversations, uh, dug deeper into the ecosystem, and we actually decided to come here to check it out. Um, and we did, and uh, we really liked it. Um, and then we narrowed it down to two places, and then actually Louisville ended up taking the first place. And so we we moved here, um, which uh, wasn't an easy decision, but I think it was the right decision. What was the what was the other place that you were looking at in comparison to Louisville? So we looked at Austin and Los Angeles, um, and those are kind of the main two. Uh, and then it was kind of down to Austin and Louisville. Hmm. Um, and then we picked Louisville. It's pretty wow. interesting to to have Louisville, to even have Kentucky in general in the mix with cities like Austin and Los Angeles. Had That's you awesome. ever been to Kentucky prior to that? that yeah, was never. It? never. <laughs> um, and that was kind of the exciting part of it um, is because I think what when we came here, um, what we saw was a lot of potential. And um, and although we wanted an ecosystem, potential was actually something that was kind of sold us uh, at the end of the day uh, into how we can contribute it to the society here, to, you know, as far as the company, how we can actually contribute it to the ecosystem in general as a whole. Um, and so kind of looking at a long-term plan, um, Louisville fit better into into where we wanted to go yeah we need to track down that 200 million dollars yeah i haven't haven't heard about that i don't know where that is i want more of that (laughs) (laughs) uh we need to find that article and and track down the writers and figure out where that where that that, money's living was that a tech stars article by chance uh i don't believe it was actually like the louisville business first article Hmm. um and you can talk to um to the to founders of leaps you can talk to patrick henshaw and Larry Horn about it okay yeah no we uh we've been texting back and forth with with patrick in the past so we'll have to we'll get him on that's one that's one thing we want to do is get him on and larry we've messaged him before as well um so that that'll come um learnings from coming inward and do you think this is a trend that will continue beyond you guys? You know, we've been hearing that at, 
it will be a trend, especially with everything going on right now with, with COVID. You know, these people are stuck in their homes. They're in large cities that are fighting this worse than others. They're starting to realize that the luster of maybe a big city is not what it could be in a, in a smaller city that is cheaper, real estate's cheaper, everything's just cost of living is way lower. Um, wh- what have your biggest learnings been moving inward and do you see this trend continuing for other, other startups? So I, I do think there is an opportunity here for cities like Louisville to uh, grab the attention uh, whether they're actually founders are going to make that move, uh, it's yet to be determined, right? It uh, depends on, on the founder. But I think there's definitely an opportunity um, to grab their attention. Uh, but I think there needs to be more of a, of, a, of a process in place. So we need to bring, right, the, to bring us on the map, basically. Bring that voice uh, to the coasts uh, that, you know, uh, whether it's in the Midwest or the South, not sure where, where Kentucky qualifies, depends who you talk to. We're in the middle um, somewhere. <laughs> that the next, you know, kind of big thing is going to come from here, um, whether, you know, it is in the healthcare space or different uh, places and, and kind of getting in front of these people is, is the tough part. Um, there's a lot of cities competing for this. Um, and so just finding out that, uh, right pitch, I think, um, is is the, is the right time now to to perfect it. Uh, and I do think the trend is to leave big cities. I mean, um, especially now, people learn that hey, you can actually build a company remotely, or at least um, you know, in a more affordable place, while your business can be elsewhere. Uh, whether you're having distributed teams or whether you're fully remote, and so depending on on how you are. Um, And I think actually that's going to change the whole ecosystem as a whole. I think people are going to, you know, be more innovative because you're getting different perspective. Um, And it's not just the coasts or the people in SF or the people in New York. Um, And you're also going to see a change in mindset of investors where it's not just about how much money you raise, right? It's about, you know, whether you're building a sustainable business, because I think a lot of investors have seen that, any valuation of company was like slashed by at least 20% um, for, for COVID, uh, you know, after this pandemic. Yeah. Makes sense. Um, so those were your learnings from moving here. What about learnings in general, building borderless? What are some of the things that popped your head uh, that you've definitely taken away from this experience thus far? Yeah. Um, I think patience uh, is like one of the things that I keep telling to myself and it seems uh, I got to keep learning it every day. Um, it, like things take a lot of time to shape. And sometimes having that oversight is very important, um, not just to you and your state of mind, right? But it's for the whole company and the team. Um, and and having that foresight to say, okay, you know, well, this is going to take me six months when realistically it's, it might take you 12 to 18 months. And if you say that to a team, then the team would start to lose uh, morale, right? Or even confidence in you. And so having that foresight and patience that things do take time um, and following through it is very important, I think. That was one of my big learnings. And and the other two is, I'd say, planning. So any kind of worst case scenario that you think is going to happen, just multiply it by three. So do the worst case scenario. You think you've done it all. Just multiply it by three after that. Uh, whether it's time to market or funding needed or whatever it is, 
uh, trust me, because it's more likely going to end up that that way. Because every entrepreneur is, um, you know, we're optimistic. That's why we're entrepreneurs. Um, yes. And so, so our worst scenario is is not the worst case scenario. Um, and so, just having that planning foresight is 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 kind of very important. And the last one I've learned is is throughout these years that team, right? Surrounding yourself by very talented, very smart people is very important. And then my number one thing is actually have to be mission driven um, to the company the same way you are. Um, and, uh, and having that example to them. So whether they are your employees, co-founders, investors, advisors, whatever that is, um, they're going to be the ones next to you building this. And so then they can take it to the next level. So while you can do anything as an entrepreneur, you can't do everything. And so, um, so I'm very happy kind of with where we are with my, with my team and they give me the ability to always, um, dream bigger and kind of change how to do things. Yeah. There's not necessarily a wrong answer to that question. Um, what, what have you learned? There is no wrong answer, but that's definitely one of the more mature experience answers I feel like we've gotten. Mm-hmm. Um, makes a lot of sense. The patience part, a hundred percent, you know, it's hard for people nowadays to grasp entrepreneurship, especially if you're trying to build a large sustainable business when they're on Instagram and you've got Grant Cardone and all these like Ty Lopez and these people just hammering you with these ads on how to drop ship Amazon products that make a lot of money very quickly. And you know, there's, it's a, there's a lot of clutter and and noise out there about what entrepreneurship is and what building a business really is. And, you know, I'm glad that you said patience because it's so true. Um, It's hard to develop that. All of these get rich quick, right? Schemes uh, that are out there. Um, I'm not going to say that all of them are long, you know, maybe 99% though. And and I'll give him that 1%. Um, And so really having that kind of determination and grit really is going to be your only savior into creating your your business. Yeah, that's one of, um, you know, I study people like Jeff Bezos. And one of the things he always says is you have to have a very long-term view on whatever you're building. So that's basically the same thing as patience, you know, if, and he says that when you do that, it gives you a major advantage over everybody else. Because if you're viewing this in the term of 10, 20 years, then small hiccups and small bumps in the road, you're looking at those as smaller than other people might because you're looking at the entire picture. That's going to take a long time versus, oh, this is going to, I'm going to get rich in, you know, three, four years. And then this small bump feels, you know, bigger, right? And, um, you know, when you look at this in a very long-term perspective, those things narrow or work themselves out. It's just like the stock market. I love investing. My, my One of my biggest hobbies is investing in companies that are newly IPO'd or very young in their public life cycles. And I do that because, one, I'm really young and I'm taking this long-term perspective. And when you invest in innovation, you know, in our age and invest in innovation in general, it's going to be volatile. And so if I take this long-term view, my stock can go down 40, 50%, but I don't care because I have that long-term view that hopefully, you know, 10, 20 years down the road, it's going to be, who knows, whatever, uh, whatever I think it might become. Uh, But I'm taking that long-term view so I have the patience to stick through it longer than other people will. Other people will sell out, take their losses. Yeah, I mean, in this day and age of very short attention spans, um, having that long-term view is very hard, right? Yes especially with all the things that are celebrated, how this founder, you know, 
in a year is now a multi-billionaire and, uh, and everyone wants to become that guy, right? But no one knows actually the 10 years of work that, for example, took this founder to get to that point where it took him one year to take it from point A to point B. Uh, all the foundation that went behind it. No one hears the, the failures, right? The, all the no's that this person has had, uh, they just hear the success story and they think that uh, it's all about success, right? That that's the story to capture. Um, but it's not. It's about the 99 no's. <laughs> yeah. Then, yeah. right, it's about the one yes that, that comes at the end. One of my favorite pictures that kind of um, illustrates that is – uh, everybody sees Jeff Bezos for who he is now, you know, worth hundreds of fifty, $150 billion. But my favorite picture of Jeff Bezos is that little office with the, like the cardboard sign of Amazon sitting on the wall in like a really trashy desk in a messy office, just him in it. You know, I think that's a, that's a great picture that people don't, don't appreciate. Um, so what's next? Where is borderless going? What's your forward looking statement on the future uh, for you and your team? Yeah. So, um, Right now, you know, what we're thinking about is um, how can we take our company a little bit more global? So how can we enable com- people to pay uh, similar to credit cards without the ability to sign up? So we're actually launching a guest checkout version coming in the next month uh, where you can quickly pay with your bank. You don't need to sign up to our service. You're in and out. Um, and we're looking also at recurring payments. So the ability to actually have this a lot of people own mortgages in different countries uh, or actually subscription models or uh, vacation homes or whatever that may be. Uh, and they're constantly wiring money back and forth uh, or the ability to actually just, uh, you know, how people pay for their phones, but actually for, or a service of companies instead of doing it with cards, how can you do it with your bank? So we're doing recurring payments and um, we're going to open it up to peer to peer payments pretty soon. Um, think of like a global Venmo, essentially, uh, everyone has like a handle. And so imagine dining out with your friends in Barcelona <laughs> and someone pays the, the bill. You can quickly kind of pay them through Voidless, um, even though you're coming from different countries. Um, and so having that ease, right. The ability to go back to our mission to pay the same way you would at home, right. Uh, wherever you are in the world and whoever you're interacting with, um, and so we have a few tricks also coming down the line for in-store digital payments um, that's going to help uh, during these times of pandemic, but also just in general. Yeah, love that. Well, we wish you the best. We're glad you're in Kentucky. We're glad you're building this in Kentucky. Uh, we'll stay connected with you uh, and hopefully have you on again very soon. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me. Uh, anyone who's listening, you can actually go to our website, getportos.com, sign up, takes five minutes, um, and you can use the code... Uh, partner 20 so on this podcast uh, and you guys can uh, start collecting payments right away 